And the last thing I wanted is someone to laugh at me for like, oh, you're soft from all those years of your free food and leading various software teams. I very much felt like I had to prove myself. How many people, especially in leadership in the warehouse, knew your name, your first name? I would say one process assistant came closest to knowing my name, but names really aren't used in the warehouse, honestly. There's a lot of sort of not exactly, hey, you, but let's just say that the original Ford would have been very proud at how interchangeable each human being was within this warehouse. But for me, I think I was spoiled by years of working for companies where each individual you hired and each individual that left really mattered a lot. And so going into this job, it was a complete reframing that I had to do. Philip Sue, a software engineering leader turned nonprofit founder, decided to shake up his life last fall, seeking an antidote to his seasonal depression in a job with more structure and less pay than he had experienced in many years. Sue worked the peak season at Amazon's flagship warehouse south of Seattle in Kent, Washington. It was a life-changing and eye-opening experience as he documents in his 15-episode podcast series, Peak Salvation. A former Microsoft software engineer who was the second employee at Facebook's Seattle engineering office, Sue led the London engineering office for Facebook, now Meta, then founded and ran the global health software nonprofit, Outeray, before adding Amazon warehouse worker to his LinkedIn profile. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. Philip Sue joins us on this episode of the GeekWire podcast to share what he learned from the experience about the nature of work, socioeconomic status, Amazon, and himself. Philip Sue, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here, Todd. You have a podcast out called Peak Salvation. And as I've told you, I started listening last week and I finished it. I binged it. It was like a Netflix series on audio for me over a couple days last weekend. And I highly recommend it. You worked a peak season at Amazon's flagship warehouse. You are an engineer. You came away from your experience in Kent with many insights into Amazon's business, but this started really as a personal journey for you. Can you explain how you ended up working the peak season at an Amazon warehouse last fall? Thank you, Todd. And I'm so glad that you enjoyed the podcast. It was a thrill to put together as well. What led me to joining Amazon really were a few things. As you mentioned, it was a personal aspect of what happened to me. I was leading a nonprofit in Seattle, building free software for global health, funded by the Gates Foundation. And after about three years, I was really struggling with seasonal depression, which I have, as you know, in Seattle, things can be a little rainy and things are tough. But what happened to me was I just was handling it particularly poorly one winter. And in the end, after months of seeing therapists and really being on medication, I decided to tell my team that, you know, I really wasn't handling the depression well. And I wanted to be able to take some time off to be able to focus on recovery first. And I was very thankful for them for being so understanding and giving me the grace to do that. And, you know, for the first few months, I felt like it was a relief to not have a job, to really be at home, to rest, to try to recover. But I found after a while, you can only go shopping at QFC on the weekdays so often <laughs> before you realize that, you know, uh, really retirement, quote unquote, isn't what it's cracked up to be. And after maybe six months of this, I found myself often waking up at noon, sometimes 2 p.m., sometimes 6 p.m. even just sleeping in way too long, just wanting the day to end is the honest truth. And so I was in a spiral of depression. And in November, I was motivated suddenly one day to at least maybe seek out a job, just anything, honestly, to give me a sense of stability and daily requirement. I wanted something to force me to get up at a specific time every day, and then to sort of not have a job where I have to make a lot of decisions and do a lot of thinking, but instead to have people literally tell me what to do. And it felt to me like Amazon would be perfect for this. Not only are the shifts required, you're penalized a, an hour at a time for being late for even one minute after opening. And so it was perfect for me. I loaded up the Amazon jobs page and found a warehouse job here in Kent. What was fascinating to me in both your entry and your exit into this Amazon job was 
it felt more like the process of signing up for a Netflix subscription. In fact, we can get to this later on, but your description of quitting later, spoiler alert, uh, but but you're not you're not working there anymore, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But your description of quitting, it struck me it might have been harder to unsubscribe from Netflix than it was for you to quit your job at Amazon. How would you describe the actual experience for people who've not yet heard your podcast of being on the floor in the warehouse doing this job and especially how it compared to your decades of work in software? You know, for me, I was just as surprised as you when I wandered onto the jobs page, clicked a few buttons to apply, and literally within two minutes, got a PDF and email with a written offer to join Amazon. I was flabbergasted. It took two minutes. But as you mentioned, when I looked to quit, it was actually 30 seconds before I got written confirmation, essentially, thank you for your service to our customers. And that was that. Seriously, Netflix would have said, are you sure you don't want to go on this lower priced plan? <laughs> Absolutely. And people might not have any idea, but Amazon's annual turnover is 150% of its staff turnover every year, meaning the average warehouse worker stays maybe eight months, right? And they so expect you to quit that on the homepage of Amazon's employee app called A to Z, on the very homepage, the bottommost link is always a link that says looking to quit. And you literally <laughs> click on that link and it brings up a calendar that says, okay, on which day? And they give you one little link that says, well, would you like to change shifts? And I for myself said, no. They show you a calendar and you pick the day and they say then the next dialogue is thank you for your service, basically. And so it was the most sort of inauspicious end to a thing that for me was a life event to them was sort of like a series of web links that essentially took you to another printed PDF. So the next thing I get from them is an email about Cobra. So basically health coverage <laughs> for me coming up. Um, but to your point, the job itself from my years of work, both at Microsoft and at Facebook, and then eventually leading a nonprofit that was software focused as well. I had been so used to, I guess, honestly, white collar tech work. As you know, I had done jobs at Subway for below minimum wage. I had delivered newspapers, but it had been a good 24 years since I did an hourly job. And for me, just seeing how there were so many positives, to be honest, about the job. And at the same time, there were a lot of gravely concerning things. So I'll lead with the optimistic stuff. So for me, leading software teams, building software offices for companies, that had always been exciting, but honestly came with a whole lot of stress. The work never left you. First of all, you were salaried, so you were expected to work as long as it took to get something done. But second, as you know, the work, it's endless, really. When you go home, like there's always more email you could write, more things you could respond to. And so there was never a sense of completion or being done. At Amazon every morning, till the end, my manager and I had never met. They never knew my name. You would show up and you would just find your name on a board with your assignment and you would go do that assignment. And during the assignment, there were no decisions to be made. Boxes would just come down the chute and you would sort the boxes. Uh, you would go ahead and lift them. And I found in a way this idea that when 6 p.m. came around, you just left the warehouse in whatever state it was. Even if boxes were overflowing off the edges, you just left right there because night shift was coming and it would be their job to do it. So even though I would say the font of boxes and of commerce was still endless, the way that tech work can be endless, you had your shift in it, you did your job and you left and there was nothing to think about at home. My mind was sort of tranquil and peaceful the entire time at home. So I found that aspect of it freeing. But the thing you gave up really was a sense of agency and control over your work. In your current work, as an example, you know, there's presumably some agency in both what you pursue and how you pursue it, right? At Amazon, you give up all of that agency. People tell you what to do. They tell you how to do it. And then you're measured just on your performance of repeating the same task over and over. Some of the things that struck me were, for example, how much people in tech take for granted just the little things, the little privileges. And it really came through for me since you were at Microsoft earlier in your career, legendary for its free sodas and snacks, in Amazon's grazing policy for warehouse workers. Explain your experience with that and the reality shift that it caused in your mind. Right. One of the biggest things I noticed right away was in the orientation videos, which you're required to watch, 
one of the first topics was be sure not to graze on the food. It had honestly never crossed my mind to sort of, uh, you know, open a box of food and just start eating it. But apparently they had these sorts of problems. And I felt to myself, wow, what a difference when you go to any of these tech companies headquarters, the food really is a constant temptation. People are worried about weight gain is the problem in tech companies, you know, and to go from that to a place where even a box of Fritos or whatever. In America, there are apparently a lot of people ordering Frito-Lay's snack box. It comes monthly. There's a snack subscription in addition to partner with your Netflix subscription. There's a good acquisition. So basically, <laughs> there are these boxes you ship where it's obviously food on the inside. And they're basically telling you, hey, don't graze on that food. I felt like this whole idea of you could be an employee in the same company in Amazon corporate versus Amazon in a warehouse. And the treatment is completely different. On my very first day of work at Amazon, their gift to everybody was a gallon-sized Ziploc bag. And inside it was a COVID mask. There was a hot and cold compress for you, one sachet of uh, some sort of sports drink mix, and then one pill of some sort of pain reliever. And that was literally the welcome <laughs> gift, you know, and I just felt like if this was frat bros, like, like trolling me, then that would be my first day gift at Amazon. But this was given out with a straight face. This was their little gift to you, their little welcome package. Whereas my first day at Facebook working, I got a free iPhone as well as a MacBook Pro, uh, maybe a hoodie, um, uh, maybe a t-shirt and, and, and a few other giveaways. And so my experience is joining the companies. You really understand how you are viewed and valued by each company based on that. It's two extremes. And my takeaway was there's got to be a better place in each scenario somewhere in the middle. That's right. As you know, Todd, you know, years ago, the big thing, which I even rolled my eyes at at the time was the Microsoft employees. When I worked at Microsoft then, really getting upset about clean towels not being offered <laughs> in the bike I, rooms, you know. I forgot about that. <laughs> people were going to quit in the same way people were going to move to Canada if the wrong candidate got into office. You know, people were literally going to quit their cushy Microsoft job because towels, you know. And so I feel like, wow, you can work at a company where people will complain. And this happened to me at Facebook all the time is people would walk into the cafeteria and sometimes just roll their eyes. Oh, no, the food was subpar today, you know, and I sort of feel like, wow, you could really go from A to Z on this zero to 60 on this sort of stuff. And if you stray too far, as you know, uh, the hedonic sort of happiness we feel is relative to those around us. And there's a sense in which if all around you is plenty and all around you is kind of half complainy sort of attitudes, then you can develop an attitude too that the current benefits just aren't enough. Somebody else is getting paid more, somebody else's office. You know, back at Microsoft, I was so discouraged when Google first opened in Kirkland because whereas Microsoft had free sodas, Google had free lunch. And that to me was like, what? Roast beef? You know? And so just realizing that there are gradations to this thing was very helpfully humbling to me. It was humbling just to listen to it. Amazon in its warehouses is legendary for some things that may be apocryphal, such as bathroom breaks. And I want to talk about your experience with some of the more basic needs and demands of the Amazon job coming up next. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. Our guest this week is Philip Sue. He is a longtime engineering leader in the Seattle region who worked the last peak season at Amazon's flagship Kent Warehouse. His podcast is called Peak Salvation. Highly recommend it. Great listen. Be sure to check it out and subscribe. Philip, what was the job like? Were you able to go to the bathroom? And most importantly, did you have to pee your pants? <laughs> right. Excellent. Yeah. And you've answered one of the key curiosities that drove me to the job. You know, not only was I sitting at home kind of rotting away in depression, 
But I also had read all these breathless takes by the New York Times and others saying people were finding all sorts of different ounceage bottles to pee in. And I just felt like, is a job that is soon to be America's number one private non-governmental employer, is that job in a market like this, where there are more openings than there are people to fill them, can it really be that bad? Would I actually urinate on myself? And so a key part of me going there was really to see, you know, is it that bad? And if I'm honest, and I know this will sound sort of upper middle class of me to say, I sort of doubted all of these breathless claims. Part of me was skeptical. I just felt like, really? Could, could it really be that bad? And I think the short answer is it really is not as bad as the dramatic things would have you say, because the only reason things are newsworthy is because they're rare. If most people were peeing on themselves, then it, it wouldn't be newsworthy, right? And so I, I would say in the warehouse, you were always free to use the bathroom whenever you wished. Now, in fairness, your quota and your rate doesn't pause when you take a break to go to the bathroom. And so it's up to you to not meander your way over and spend 15 minutes in there. But as long as you were on top of your quota and your rates, I found bathroom breaks to be zero issue. Now, in fairness to previous warehouse employees, this might be some sort of shift since all this bathroom talk. There was probably a manager memo at some point saying, please emphasize that people can use the bathroom instead of wetting themselves when necessary. <laughs> So perhaps I caught the tail end of that. But certainly I found that there was a lot of emphasis on taking breaks if needed and just keeping an eye on things and, and going to the bathroom when you want. So I was honestly a little bit disappointed that there wasn't a moment <laughs> because for my podcast, that would have been huge. You know, that would have been a huge, nice episode where, you know, finally the dams on the bladder break and I can't hold it anymore. You know, that would have been a great episode there, great cliffhanger. But I unfortunately couldn't claim that there was ever a time when, 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 when the urine was a problem. Describe the area of the warehouse that you worked in, the nature of the work, and the difficulty of the labor. So the warehouse has about four key roles, and they are a picker, a packer, right? And I was in ship dock there, and there are people who unload the trucks with new materials in. So I worked in ship dock, which was outbound, which means that by the time I handle a box, it already is taped up, it has an address label on it, and it's destined for a customer somewhere in the world. The job in ShipDoc is also monitored, but nowhere near as metricized as the rest of the warehouse. When you are a picker at Amazon, you're picking directly from robot-driven shelves, and you're expected to pick an object about every, I think, 6.8 seconds or so. And if you don't maintain that quota, you're essentially fired. In ShipDoc, because of the wide-ranging nature of the different work going on there, it's not as heavily metricized. The most frequently looked at metric in ShipDoc was the number of packages you shipped, you sorted per hour. So a good rate would be about uh, 180 to 200. I hit a peak rate of 388, so it's not impossible to go much higher than that. But on a typical day, I estimate I personally lifted with my own arms about six tons of packages a day. So that was a tremendous amount. And just to give you a sense of six tons, because what really is six tons of Amazon boxes? A typical Amazon Prime truck you see on the road, if it has customer packages, you know, those blue trucks that say there's a truckload more to Prime, right? <laughs> um, those trucks are probably filled about six feet high out of a 10 foot high clearance in it. So six tons of packages is one full 18 wheeler basically. So it would be like you showing up in the morning, your manager pointing to one truck and saying, unload every box from this truck one at a time and sort them, right? That was my typical shift at Amazon. Now, you were pretty confident after a couple days, if I recall correctly, and then you developed tendonitis. And this had a real impact on your work, on your job, on your life. The repetition of the things that you had to do can you describe what that did to your hands in particular? Right, yeah. And I'm really glad you raised this because just one of your previous episodes had covered how Amazon is thinking about software that can help rotate people and, and whatnot through labor, right? So that they don't repeat the same strains. And I fully believe someone is working on that. My personal experience in my time at ShipDoc and BFI4, the flagship warehouse, was that rotations were arbitrary and up to the process assistant on any given day to assign. And so on some days you would be put out in a job and you would just work that job all 11 hours. On other days, you would be 90 minutes into something and they would need you to go help out somewhere else. And so they would pull you from that. The irony is after about two weeks there, I literally had a guy stop me and say, you've got to slow down. 
and, and, and he told me, look, when I first started, I worked just as hard as you. And what happens is when you work hard, they keep asking you to just bail out other people all the time. And this is indeed what happened to me is I would sort my little spur, which is one end of a huge conveyor belt. I would sort my end of it. And then they would see that my spur had little packages. And so they would go put me on the spur with a ton of packages. Software developers are super used to this phenomenon where most software teams have this idea of a bug fixing period, right? And the managers who haven't thought this through will have everybody fix bugs and whoever fixes all their own bugs first, then they say, oh, you're idle. Why don't you go help out Bobby here who has a ton of bugs, right? And what happens is Bobby has a bunch of bugs because Bobby writes bad software. But the way you reward Bobby is that you get the person who wrote good software who fixed bugs quickly. Your reward to them is to go fix Bobby's bugs. And so I think this whole idea of the management balance really was off, at least in my experience at the Amazon warehouse, it really rewarded behaviors that sort of were counterproductive. The big difference in that comparison, though, is in the software world, the person who was helping Bobby, if the evaluation process and the merit pay process was working correctly, would have rewarded that person helping the lower level or less capable engineer with higher compensation. But in Amazon's warehouses, that's not the way it works. And for me, this inequity in labor and output and value and production, and then the consistency in pay among all the warehouse workers was one of the key insights from your podcast. Can you explain that from your perspective? Everybody who starts in the Kent facility starts this past peak season at $18.55 an hour, which I'm told is already a few bucks over what it used to be given the tight labor market. But everybody starts at the same wage. And then in six months, if you're still there, and that's a big if for Amazon Associates, if you're still there, you get a 25 cent raise. And in a 12-month time period, you get another 25-cent raise. And so after working there a year, everybody gets a total of a 50-cent raise over the 1855 that you started with. And this, as you mentioned, is not performance-gated at all. And so the best and the worst person there still gets paid the same. And so this, in a sense, incentivizes a race to the bottom, really. It's basically you're smartest if you do the bare minimum amount of work it takes to not get fired is what you want, because that's the only rational thing to do. Now, you might ask yourself, why did I give myself tendonitis bailing out other people's uh, spurs when I claim to have lifted 388 packages an hour at times when the expected was 180, right? Uh, you could very well ask that. And I think some of it, honestly, is this residual sense. You know, I've been so I guess, blessed and privileged in the tech world to always be working for companies for which there was the sense of working on the same team, the sense of wanting to accomplish something greater, the sense of, of just being a good team player that a big part of me honestly just could not shut off the overachiever in me. I just felt like some people would like to stand at a spur where a box comes down every four minutes, right? And I just would leave those spurs right away because I just could not be paid 11 hours to stand there four minutes at a time lifting one box. I kind of, in a sense, wanted the busy spur. Like I wanted to feel like my time there was actually moving boxes, was actually going to serve some customer somewhere. And so I, in a way, elected, you could say I elected into the tendonitis, right? But I think at the same time, asking anybody, you know, e even somebody lifting a third my rate, right, would have been lifting two tons a day with their arms, which, you know, if you've ever moved even one ton of material like that, that's actually quite a bit to lift with your own body uh, for a day. Maybe I'm projecting on you in this way, Philip, but I heard in your overachieving nature some insecurities because I understand that. I empathize with that. Equating your self-worth to your output, was that part of it? Absolutely. I'm Chinese American and was raised in America entirely my whole life since I was five, but by parents who are very traditional Chinese. And so to them, sort of reading a book like The Tiger Mom would have been redundant. You know, they would not have needed that lesson. And so this sense that my worth and whether I was going to be praised even by my own parents would be largely dependent on my performance is so deeply ingrained that I think you're absolutely right. I went in there not only wanting to feel like somebody give me a number that tells me I'm doing okay. There was that sense, 
But honestly, there was also the sense of like, well, here's the nerd going to join the jocks in the playground, you know, and the last thing I wanted is someone to laugh at me for like, oh, you're soft from all those years of your free food and leading various software teams. I very much felt like I had to prove myself. Now, what's hilarious, of course, is only one person in the entire warehouse for all of Peak ever knew what my previous job was. And so this insecurity was all projected within myself. But I very much felt a sense of, I guess for myself, I wanted to feel like I could still hang with everyday people and that I could really empathize really with what the average American goes through. So I wanted to not just skid by with the job, but really try to excel in it and see what the boundaries of it were. How many people, especially in leadership in the warehouse, knew your name, your first name? I would say one process assistant came closest to knowing my name, and he consistently kept calling me Peter. So I corrected him every time, but he, he stuck it to the end. So, so I think I, I just have to admit to myself that I look like a Peter. But names really aren't used in the warehouse, honestly. There's a lot of sort of not exactly, hey, you, but let's just say that the original Ford would have been very proud at how interchangeable each human being was within this warehouse. What did that tell you about the culture of the place? understandably, if I was running an organization with a turnover of 150% a year, you would have to have a philosophy where the individual themselves is not make or break for anybody. You would have to have a system for where a constant conveyor belt of people coming in is going to fill a constant conveyor belt of people going out and everybody is generic, right? In, in all sorts of ways. So I can understand why they have that system. But for me, I think I was spoiled by years of working for companies where each individual you hired and each individual that left really mattered a lot. And so going into this job, it was a complete reframing that I had to do. Well, this gets to something that you and I traded some emails about in advance of this podcast recording. And I realized it was not your intent in going into this warehouse to come away with insights and a possible path forward for Amazon to improve things there. But of course, especially with your engineering mind, you did come away with some takeaways, and I want to talk about those coming up next. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop. You're listening to the GeekWire podcast. And our guest this week is Philip Sue, a longtime software engineering leader who worked the peak season last fall and winter at the Amazon flagship warehouse on the front lines in Kent, Washington. His podcast is called Peak Salvation. Philip, as we mentioned, you didn't go in there looking for uh, top 10 things Amazon needs to do to fix its warehouses, but you pretty much came away with a lot of different things that they could do to improve things from your perspective. And this is especially timely because Dave Clark, the head of Amazon's consumer business, the CEO of Amazon's worldwide consumer business, just this week resigned. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy is looking for his replacement. I don't know if that'll be you maybe, Philip. <laughs> <laughs> but failing that, I think the person coming in could benefit from these kinds of insights and all of us as well could learn a thing or two. What would you change if you could? Todd, I know from all your years of experience, you know that engineers, you know, one of our weaknesses is we walk through the world seeing all sorts of inefficiencies and they all bother us. <laughs> so I do think that there are a whole host of things about how an Amazon warehouse operates where I can only assume people who have thought about the problem much more deeply really do have their reasons. So I want to be careful not to name the whole host of things that to me seemed inane, but I'm sure are based in some sound reasoning. I've even talked to one or two people who design warehouse floors, you know, and they've told me that there are a lot of considerations that go beyond what it seems. But I will focus on a few things from an employee perspective that I think would make a huge difference. I think the biggest difference is just plain how they schedule during peak. 
Amazon of all businesses should be the business that knows and anticipates a peak season every year. And yet what they do, instead of doing a Boeing sort of three, eight hour shift, constantly rotating sort of thing year round, they insist on keeping people on 10 hour shifts on a normal part of the year. And then all of a sudden during peak, bumping you to 11 or 11 and a half and also greatly upping the volume. I think if they simply went to a Boeing style, rotating three, three periods a day, and then during peak hiring so that everybody still does eight hour days, I feel like numerically that should all pencil out if you ignore benefits and all of this, but it is not something they do. So I think that one thing for me as an employee is just, was it really necessary for me to lift six tons of boxes a day, or could I lift four and have someone else do the other two tons? Another thing about this that I heard from many employees is schedule predictability. During peak, the key was they could call you in for a full 11-hour mandatory day up to as little as maybe 14 to 16 hours the day before. So my usual shifts were Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and on peak that added a Saturday. So if I made plans with friends on a Sunday, I would have to check my Amazon app after lunch on Saturday to be sure they hadn't added a mandatory 11-hour shift on Sunday. And as an employee, I could miss, uh, well, I couldn't miss, uh, if I missed even one mandatory shift, including these last minute called shifts, I would be fired. And to think that your houses, your family's healthcare could be dependent on you retaining this job. Imagine if I had uh, seniors I had to take care of, or if I had kids that needed babysitting. For you to be told on a Saturday at 11 a.m. that they're essentially going to need you to come in on Sunday <laughs> and for you to get 11 hours worth of childcare at the last minute, I feel like that just strikes me as supremely unreasonable. So that is certainly one thing that I would change about it is the schedule predictability. You mentioned earlier as well the idea of rotating people into different jobs. It sounds like that is something they're considering. Andy Jassy mentioned it in response to a recent shareholder question, and it sounds like you think that would be a good idea. Yes, not only that, but consider this, that I applied randomly as an outsider and got a ship dock job, which many people view as a sweet sinecure because it's not as heavily metricized as, let's say, the picking job. And yet you meet many internal employees that have been applying for role shifts for months at this point. It confuses me why they would offer an outside person the chance to go do that when someone on the inside, presumably a good measured employee, wants to switch jobs. Why wouldn't you offer them first? And I think a cynical view, which I'm not at all saying is Amazon's view, this is just if a cynic were to speak, what they would say is, well, if you hire a person from the outside, you needed to hire anyway, you eat the training costs one time. But if you let the internal picker change into ship dock, you have to train that picker to be a ship dock person and you have to train a new person to be a picker. And so a cynic would say, well, the cheapest thing to do is actually to keep people in their role just as long as you can keep them. All of these ideas get to this bigger picture question, which is the longevity, the tenure, how these jobs are treated. Is it something where somebody comes to Amazon and works for years and years and years in the warehouse? Or is it something where it's more of a long-term temporary job, a gig in a lot of ways? And there have been some reports from inside Amazon that suggest that Amazon thinks of it more like the latter, where Jeff Bezos does not want, and Andy Jassy now following him, they do not want these to be long-term careers for these folks, in part because of the threat of unionization, which was also taking place in other warehouses when you were there. What are your thoughts on that? I feel like our society is shifting. If you consider the difference between a McDonald's and let's say a Chick-fil-A, you could on one hand say, well, you get easy sandwiches from both, but they treat their mental model of what their employees are is very different. McDonald's does have that model of you sort of cycle through, right? But you find many other stores for which even relatively low paying jobs are treated more like long-term work for people. Consider Costco employees as an example where there's an investment for the long term. I think we'll have to shift this slowly, not only because the labor market is getting tighter, but also because at this point, Amazon employs something like one out of every 153 working people in America. At some point, you're going to run out of people to churn through <laughs> this. And it's already getting so tight to the point where if you are fired from an Amazon warehouse for underperformance, 
they just want you to sit in the penalty box for 90 days and then you may reapply. Like that is how desperate right now they are for even underperformers to come back. So I do think at some point the writing's going to be on the wall that what used to be a temporary job when our society was booming, when the population was young and growing, you know, now we have people retiring out of the boomer age. We have a shrinking birth rate. I think they are soon going to have to recognize that these jobs, people might stay in them longer because other opportunities, frankly, just aren't out there. So that would require, I imagine, changing the way shifts are awarded, roles are awarded, how people are recognized and moved up through the organization over time. Yes. And I think a real sense of ownership. Amazon used to give stock to their warehouse employees. What I'm told by one warehouse associate who's been working at BFI4 since it launched five years ago was that they used to give the stock, but then there was so much outside pressure to increase base pay. And Amazon would try to explain, well, the compensation is more than base pay. It's the fact that we do tuition reimbursement and we also do, you know, this and that and we give stock. And But then people said, ah, just shut up, just raise the base pay. So they said, fine, we'll shift all of that stuff into base pay. There you go, right? And so I, I do think not only giving stock as a sense of being part of it, but really it's much more about the spiritual question of are warehouse associates truly part of their leadership principles and slogans beyond frugality, which is the obvious one, but things like think big and sort of like <laughs> invent and simplify, right? I had plenty of things that I invented and simplified while I was there. There was just no one that would take my feedback. And so at what point might they begin to apply those leadership principles to their associates as well to really give them a seat at the table? This is interesting in part because just this past week, Amazon did a 20 for one stock split and you can envision, or at least I can envision in my head, that making it much more feasible to award stock again to warehouse employees because you have units of equity that are much easier to give and it just makes so much more sense. You're not spending $2,500 per share anymore. You're at less than $200 per share. So it seems like that would be a no-brainer to bring back. And by the way, Philip, that was the gotcha in Amazon's $15 minimum wage announcement, much ballyhooed, was simultaneously they took away this equity for the reasons you explained. But at the same time, it was the untold or at least not as prominently told underside, underbelly of that whole move. Right. And where I worry, Todd, really is every 10 years, we get up our Twitter ire to go shame one big baddie. 10 years ago, it was Walmart. Oh, no, Walmart's destroying its employees. Let's Walmart this, Walmart that. People might be peeing on themselves. And so then what happened is we shamed them so much that Walmart right now, you haven't heard about a bad Walmart complaint in a long time because they cleaned up, right? But the real problem, the real place I worry is right now, Amazon's the obvious target for us to turn that Twitter ire now to a new baddie. But really what enables this is a system, it's structural to our democracy and our economy is as long as Amazon's technically doing everything legally, you take my medical accommodation thing, it was legal, everything they did, it's just not great. And so I think that if we shame Amazon into doing these things, giving some stock, making shifts more predictable, right, making the hours reasonable and the liftage less, I believe we can accomplish all these things through some combination of unionization or threats of not being able to hire. But ultimately, we are in a free market where if things are allowed to be done, whoever pays more to benefits for their current employees, they'll just be outcompeted by the new small guy who one day will take over because they're able to cut costs because they don't provide those things. So I do think what we're talking about fundamentally in our economy is a rethink of what it means to be an American working 40 hour weeks. Like the question really is, if an American works 40 hours a week, I was working 55 to 57 and a half, right? If an American works 40 hours a week, does he or she and their family deserve health care? And do they deserve to be able to rent the cheapest apartment in the industrial district of our city? And if our answer is yes, the current answer is no company right now pays that amount and guarantees those things for 40 hour workers. And I think that's the real problem. That was the thing that really struck me throughout the podcast 
there are so many bigger picture lessons to be learned from each of your experiences. And I'm tempted to go through each of them, but it's, it's a 15 hour podcast. And I, I, I think we're just giving people a sampler here. I think the other experience that was really eye opening for me was your injury report. Could you describe that, how that worked and the motivations that you could sense inside the company in terms of how they treated the statement that you made that you had tendonitis and you weren't able to do your normal job? I was lifting packages every day, and at first my hands were sore understandably, but then I realized in the mornings when I was waking up, two things would happen. For the first half hour of every morning, my hands would be numb from the wrist upward. And then the other thing was I looked like I was auditioning for a thriller video. You know, my hands were permanently slightly curled, you know, and I had to use <laughs> gentle force to straighten my fingers. Now, they would straighten out, but the moment I released, they would curl again. And I thought this Amazon stint is fun for right now, but my long term, I probably still need to type. And I was, became very concerned about where my hands were going. Once the numbness started becoming consistent, even on my days off, then I started feeling like I need to go see someone. And so Amazon shunted me off to go get uh, a medical analysis before they would do anything. And so I got treated by a doctor who did diagnose it as tendonitis, gave me uh, steroids as well as some medication. And then I began the medical accommodation process at Amazon, which they shunt you off to a third party that administers the process. You give them all the paperwork. And then I waited for a week and I heard nothing back. And so then I wrote them saying, hey, and in that week, uh, you'll recall, I'm still working 55 hours a week, lifting six tons a day, this sort of thing. Then I pinged them again and they said, okay, well, we've made a decision on your medical accommodation and please tell me what you decide. Either A, this accommodation sounds good, I accept it, or B, essentially, never mind, I'm okay now, I'll go back to my job. But here was the accommodation they offered. Because they first asked me, what would I rather do, right? And I said, well, I'm lifting six tons a day because it's customer packages that contain multiple items. I think if you put me on something like a picker job, I could pick one Amazon item at a time. And I suspect that would just be a lot easier. So I said, please, please put me in the picking department, right? And they, they said, no. Instead, they said, we'll put you on light duty. And it's three hours a day, which sounds good. And I'll get to why that's not good. Three hours a day on completely different days from my normal shift, okay? So like a completely different set of days. So you can imagine if I needed childcare or if I counted on the kids being in school for six out of the 11 hours I'm working, for you to tell me here, surprise, it's uh, Saturday, Sundays, Mondays, and Tuesdays are your new light shift duty, right? That is almost undoable, I'm sure, by most people. The second thing to realize is many white collar workers might think, well, that's sweet. You work three hours now instead of 11 hours. But here's the deal. Three hours a day is three hours pay, right? And so taking that deal for just that two-week period cost me more than 60% of my monthly salary right then because there was overtime during peak and it was 11 hours and all of this stuff. So if you pencil it out, it would have been tantamount to me saying getting relief for my hands for two weeks cost me $1,700. That was what it was. So the choices they gave me was accept your new shift with the three hours or Never mind, I'm actually okay. There's not a medical issue. And so I felt very much stuck on that. As would any employee. And you were fortunate, though, that you didn't have those constraints that somebody might have needing the childcare. You were flexible. And so you decided to take the accommodation. And the way the timing worked out, you worked in that accommodation how many days? I had my one glorious day of light duty. So what happened was when I saw the doctor and I saw the doctor the very night they told me you need a doctor to attest to your illness, right? I saw a doctor that very night. I gave them the paperwork that very next day. They delayed seven days on making a decision until I asked again. And then after that, I went back and forth on, wait, exactly which day is my first day? And then they said, no, this day, that day. So that literally my first day in light accommodation, like light work, light duty was the last day of the two week span. My doctor said that I should be lifting light things. So I did one day in medical accommodations. All of this raises a fascinating question in terms of technology. We're talking about this injury that you had that was diagnosed as tendonitis. And at the same time, we're talking about the notion that, hey, wouldn't it be great if Amazon turned this into a career that people were vested in and it was long-term? What role do you see automation playing in this? Did you see automation on the floor when you were there, robots? How do you square all these different things based on your experience? 
We have a tough thing ahead, and I think you're absolutely right that the answer is not easy. I saw robots in different parts of the warehouse, robots for pickers, for instance, so that the pickers don't walk to the shelves, the shelves kind of walk to them. There are also right now packaging bots, basically, that will take your product and wrap a package around it, a custom-made package around it, so that pretty soon packers won't need the jobs either. I feel very torn about this. On one hand, good riddance. You know, if robots get rid of these very mundane jobs, these jobs where people get injured, that's great on one hand. My real question is two things. Where does the economic value of those robots accrue to? Who does it accrue to, first of all? And second, what does the replaced person go to do? I fear for both of those things. Right now, the answer to whoever deploys the robot the answer is the value accrues to the intellectual property owner of whoever deployed the robot, not to the worker that the robot understandably replaced, right? But the second thing is our economy is rapidly moving toward one where there's a lot of competition for a small set of high paying jobs and increasingly entry level jobs and especially non-college related jobs continue to be stagnant in their wages and really be on hold there. I don't know if there's a future where all these people who do not have college degrees can continue to get a meaningful job when replaced by robots. So I'm worried about that. There's a really interesting scenario that gets set up in the course of your podcast. And that is when you start to notice the Amazon spheres, the big glass orbs that sometimes go by a somewhat less polite name. <laughs> and those are in downtown Seattle. And one of the points you make at one point in the podcast is these are supposed to be for Amazon employees. So you decided to test that and it kind of threw them for a loop. Yeah, showing up at the Amazon Spheres was great because you know from the outside when you watch it glow at night and you see all that tropical verdure, you know, and it lights the sidewalk, it really feels like your tribute visiting the capital for the first time in Hunger Games. It really feels like wow, this is a magical place. And its website advertises that it's meant for their employees to think big and to invent and simplify. And so I finally showed up one day to try to test this claim that Amazon employees may end Enter, and indeed, my card key didn't work. But to Amazon's credit, I just went back to the receptionist who was honestly quite ashamed for me at this point. She felt awkward as well. Um, and I explained that I worked in an Amazon warehouse. And so she picked up the, the receiver, just like all those movies where the person checks your passport and they have to call someone, you know? So she like calls someone and she kind of answers a few questions delicately and then she hangs up and then she has me try again. And indeed, I'm, I'm led into these spheres. And it really, after working sort of in a super dark, no natural light warehouse for 11 hours a day for weeks at this point, getting into here just felt like I couldn't believe this was a place meant for the same company's employees. The general porpoise sort of cafe in the middle, a single donut was five US dollars. And then an, an Americano on top of that was 450. And so my son and I bought one donut and one coffee. And that was a good one hour's worth of my work after taxes, right? And so you just realize, wow, this is how the other half lives when it comes to Amazon. We spent most of our time at the peak of one of the domes where the, there are these pool chairs, like these deck chairs, and you can sort of lay down in them. And there's very prominently a Wi-Fi access point, presumably, so that you can attend your important meetings and not be late for any code commits. And so we just spent a good 15 minutes there. And I honestly was, A, so thankful not to be lifting packages and to have some natural light during the day. But part B, I was just incredulous. If you had told me that I had entered spheres built by a hedge fund for its Harvard and MIT grads, then I would get it. But the fact that we work for the same company and that I had to have special secret phone calls made to be let in, it was just depressing, to be honest. This podcast overall was so eye-opening and that contrast and that scene I regret that I might have just spoiled the ending for some folks. And, <laughs> Spoiler alert. But, so, but trust me, there's so much more to get out of this podcast. Don't, don't let that stop you from, from listening. So, Philip, I am just curious. It wasn't clear necessarily from the end. Where now from here for you? Yeah, it's a great question, Todd. I've known a few things from it. One is that from this experience, I much more feel like what else can be done for the average American worker? Software, which is where I've worked my whole life, I've always been on the side of it being 
efficiency increasing. Why wouldn't you want it? Wouldn't it just raise the standard of, of living ultimately for everybody? And it in a way does. But I do think that us blindly going out and just deploying these things and not really thinking through is our society keeping pace with this? Is legislation and regulation keeping pace with this stuff? I now think a lot more about how can I help participate make, uh, to make sure that society itself keeps pace and that we don't just leave a bunch of people behind. It's sort of like the no child left behind, except now it's become no American left behind, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like we got to start thinking about things that way. As I say in the podcast, you know, Elon is out there building rockets, which I, I'm amazed at the amount of uh, price reduction he's brought to that industry. And I'm sure that that's beautiful. But make no mistake who's going up in that rocket first when we go to Mars. It is not going to be the one guy trying to enter the Amazon spheres who needs a special call before he's allowed in. He's not the first one to board that rocket. And so I do think as our Earth starts to struggle, we should be under no illusion which type of person gets saved by a rocket leaving to Mars first. And we need to fight for a society that really says, no, we built this city together and we need to come out of this together. And so a lot of what I focused on for myself next is, one, how can I maybe help in that move toward bringing our society along with technical progress? Two, on a nuts and bolts level, I am just not made for retirement. You know, like ultimately <laughs> retirement is a bad look, you know, and I tell all the youngsters retirement is a bad look. Like I want a job that makes me go to work. I want a position in life where I have to struggle. I've been uh, teaching at the University of Washington at Northeastern University as well. I'm trying to work my way downstream. So I've been calling a bunch of local community colleges and high schools offering to teach computer science. My hope is to reach underprivileged folks or underrepresented folks. And you know, what's frustrating there is I can teach at two universities, but no high school will take me because I'm not certified. So all this claim about like, we need teachers, we need blah, blah, blah. I can hardly get people to respond to my emails. And, and so my hope is to work downstream to help build the passion for technology for a group of people who might be underrepresented right now and hopefully help shift the balance of sort of our society through that way as well. This quest started really as an exercise in mental health for you and a search for structure. What did you learn from that structure? And, and are you hoping to keep some element of that in your life going forward? Absolutely. The structure was hugely helpful for me. Not only the time that was required every day, but the sense that I need to find a place in our society where I'm actively contributing meaningfully every day. And the first, you know, the first time I took off work was when I quit Meta. You know, and let me tell you, once you've done weekday skiing, you'll never want to go weekend skiing ever again. <laughs> you'll view every weekend as a wasted weekend if you're waiting in some lift line somewhere. But what you realize after skiing weekdays for a month is, as they said on the top of the Temple of Apollo, nothing in excess. And this was humanity's wisdom thousands of years ago. And I keep having to relearn these things myself is nothing in excess. So one of the biggest things I gained from the warehouse experience was a complete reset of my hedonic treadmill. I've gotten myself back to a point where $5.99 Thanksgiving Costco pie is something I'm genuinely thankful for. You know, it tastes delicious when you've been working 23 minutes pre-tax in order to pay for that pie, right? And so that reset really helped me think the trick to at least my personal ongoing happiness is not skiing ever more dangerous terrain in ever more weekday, you know, things, not at Whistler, at Vail also, internationally, the Alps but really to dial it to negative 11 for a while, to reset the hedonic treadmill so that I have headroom for growth for, for my happiness. So that's the second big thing I learned from it. This is great, Philip. I could talk to you for hours and I'm truly fascinated by the experience that you went through and your own story about what you learned from that experience. The podcast is called Peak Salvation. Philip Zhu, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Todd. I have six words for you. Work hard, have fun, and make history. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Well played, Todd. Very good move. <laughs> I'm thrilled to have been here. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for listening to the GeekWire podcast. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Once again, you can find Philip Sue's podcast, Peak Salvation, at peaksalvation.com. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop, and we'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.